This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, The Subtleties of Surrender, recorded June 18, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, this is a question that came in the question box. Short and sweet. Surrender. A talk about surrender. Erica. <laughs> She's here this morning, so we'll go ahead and get it. And, of course, she asks uh, a short and sweet question, but uh, just because it's a short and sweet question doesn't mean it's going to be a short and sweet answer. <laughs> <clears throat> but as I said, instead of spending a lot of time intellectually discussing it, I thought I'd talk a little bit about it, and then we'd actually do some practice and try to practice mm -hmm. surrender. But let me give you a little background to see where we are heading. So, the first question is, what must be surrendered? And Rumi, the great Sufi poet, gives a short, succinct <laughs> answer. He says, in the religion of love, all things are sacrificed. So the answer is everything. Everything. And then we should ask why, because this is one of the primary teachings in all mystical traditions, and I think it's one that puts people off a lot. Well, gee, I have to be spiritual, I have to sacrifice, I have to surrender, I have to give things up. And I think, especially coming from our culture, uh, people tend to think of it as some sort of moral duty, this terrible thing you have to do in order to get a reward. So it, I think maybe it harkens back to our childhood, you know, where you had to mow the lawn and then you got, uh, well, my day, 50 cents. <laughs> Today I think they get five bucks. Uh, so it's sort of like, well, if, if I make all these sacrifices, I'll get something good, as though making the sacrifice itself was something terrible that you had to do. So I think it's really important to understand the reason behind this principle. And I think if we look at the most fundamental aspect of the spiritual path, we can say the problem is that our attention is distracted from reality. Chronically distracted from reality. And what distracts us are things. All sorts of things. From gross things to very subtle things. And it's not so much the things per se, it is how we perceive the things, all things. And we perceive them through a filter of delusion. <clears throat> and the root of that delusion is a separation, a duality, a dichotomy between I and other. So all these things appear to be other, except for one very small pool of things that appear to be I. So body sensations appear to be I, thoughts appear to be I, feelings appear to be I, and so forth. But everything else out there appears to be other. And so this delusion hinges around this idea that this line, this um, 
boundary between I and other is real, that there is some real I, some real self, some real ego entity here. And because all the things that are inside this boundary are ephemeral, transitory, and permanent, we get worried. Because if I am these things inside this boundary, my body, my thoughts, my emotions, then someday uh, they're going to disintegrate. And in fact, at any moment, they might disintegrate. So this sets up a whole dualistic way of viewing the world where we start to see everything as either something that's going to enhance and protect the self or something that is threatening this self. So we have this dualism of our perception translates into a dualism of action or motivation, let's say. <laughs> so fundamentally, it's open. Go on outside. <laughs> it's open, darling. She can go. That's a, that is a teaching. Mary Smog said it's a teaching. It's open. Yes, it is a teaching. <laughs> the cat doesn't get it. <laughs> She wants to go into the bedroom with the other cats. So this is a smart cat, and this is a very demanding cat, and this is a cat who's riddled with desire, who's in the grip of desire. And she knows how to get her way, too. Okay, so to come back. So we have this delusion of self, and this delusion of self promotes this grasping or pushing away of everything outside the self, depending on whether we think it will benefit us or harm us. Now, all this creates tremendous distraction. This means our attention is captivated all the time by what's going on inside the supposed self and what's going on outside the supposed self. So we are habitually enslaved, our attention is, by these desires, aversions, and all this that's arising. So really, when we're talking about surrender, the final thing we have to surrender is this slavery of attention. And in a funny way, we have to surrender our attention. We just have to let our attention go. If we can let our attention go, it will naturally return to the source, to the reality, the truth of who we are. In some traditions, this is described as a homing pigeon. If you let the homing pigeon go, it goes home. As long as you keep it caged, it can't go home. So along the way, to get to that point, we have to start <coughs> surrendering the cage piecemeal. Bar by bar, brick by brick. So the first thing that mystics talk about when they talk about surrender is surrender of self. This delusion of self, really, not any true self, because there is no true self there. Surrender this self. So just to give you some examples, here's Ramana Maharshi, great Hindu mystic. A man should surrender the personal selfishness which binds him to this world. Giving up the false self is true renunciation. 
this personal selfishness that binds us to this world, to this world of delusion, not to uh, this world of appearances, as though we're going to go someplace else, but it's this world as it appears to us through the filter of delusion. Here's the Buddhist Lakmatara Sutra. This is called the Bodhisattva's Nirvana, the losing oneself in the bliss of perfect self-yielding. Now, this is a nice one because this one indicates to you that there's something joyful about surrender. It's not some duty you have to perform in order to get the goodies. The bliss of self-yielding. Maybe just those uh, words can touch our hearts a little bit. What would it be like to give up all this worry, concern for self? To give up all this trying to hold on to what we want, trying to ward off what we don't want, all this energy and effort that goes into that. What would it be like to just self-yield, the ease of just doing that? Of just forgetting all about that. Just letting all that go. And then, of course, this is what Jesus meant when he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross day by day and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake shall save it. Now, there's this business of this cross in here which makes us, especially we come from a Christian background, feel this is some awful, horrible thing. You know, we're going to have to crucify ourselves. But from a mystical point of view, the crucifixion is the crucifixion of the false self. The crucifixion of this delusion. And this business of day-to-day is very important. From a mystic's point of view, taking up the cross day-to-day is finding... Those little bits of selfishness day to day that come up in your life and letting them go. And in fact, when we talk about you must surrender yourself, the big problem with that is what is this self we have to surrender? And as I said, from a mystic's point of view, it's a delusion. There is no entity self. You can't just go out and find a big hunk of something called self and just give it up because there's no big hunk of something there. If you look into self, you find that it's really a series of events, of uh, habits, of tendencies. It's not one thing. So we have to break down our idea of self and go look more Closely, more specifically, we have to observe in our lives when this selfish tendency arises. Because we're not going to find some big, as I said, piece of meat or something that is a self that we can just, you know, uh, give away to goodwill. So, this is what 90% of the path is about. This business of self-observation, of uh, observing detecting what is self, and as we find it, letting it go. And 
at this stage of the path, we have to make an effort, we have to use our will, we have to use our, our thought, uh, we can analyze aspects of ourselves to see what is actually there and so forth. <clears throat> this is, as I said, about 90% of the path for most people. Uh, Theophane the Recluse, the great Christian mystic, sums up the whole path quite well, I think, this way. He says, but all that relates to this work may be accomplished in two movements of free will. The turning from the outside world to one's inner self and the subsequent turning from the self towards God or reality. In the first movement, man regains the power over himself which he had lost. And in the second he brings himself as an offering to God, the free will <laughs> offering of burnt sacrifice. That's a very rich description here. And what he's saying is, in the first movement, we exercise our will. And in the second movement of this, we let it go. It's a free willed sacrifice. We willingly let our will go. There's a paradox in there. But it's important to understand that this is not something that we do grudgingly. And this business of a burnt offering is interesting. Of course, it comes from the Old Testament and uh, the burnt offerings that were given at the temple in the Judaism. But it's got an interesting uh, parallel or corollary with descriptions of the end of the path from the Buddhist tradition, which has no idea of God or burnt offerings or anything like that. And that is that when you finally get to the end of the path, this selfish grasping and aversion is burned out, extinguished. The word nirvana means to be extinguished, blown out. It's like burned out. Uh, in the Hindu tradition, they talk about burning karma until it's burned out. It's burning out these tendencies. It's very interesting how some of these metaphors keep cropping up from tradition to tradition. The power he's talking about over ourselves is not some egotistical power where you conquer yourself and so now you can uh, win friends and influence people. Or have any of you seen that movie, American Beauty? Uh, the the uh, real estate salesman says, to be successful, you must project an image of success. And the idea is he's got such power over himself that even if his life is falling apart, he can go and smile and project <laughs> this image of success, you see. This isn't what he's talking about. It's really the power to break these habits. And that does take a little effort at first. We have to identify the habits, and then we have to exercise a little restraint, because they are habits. So you find yourself grasping after something, grasping after something, and most of the time it's almost subconscious. You just take it for granted. This is the way life is. <clears throat> As you discover it, then there's a chance there to exercise will and effort and just stop. What would happen if I stopped grasping after this? Is the sky going to fall down? 
Oh, no. It's through this exercising this power to restrain and break this habit that you then begin to create and open up a space of freedom that isn't dominated by these habitual tendencies. And every time we can open up a little space of freedom, attention is then liberated a little bit. Because attention is totally captivated by all this grasping and pushing away. So this process requires, first of all, paying attention to what enslaves attention. Paying attention to ourselves. Watching our lives day in, day out, in all the little ways uh, that we behave. And this takes a commitment because this habitual tendency or tendencies, they've been going on for a long time. And then we have to practice detachment because when we see this grasping, detachment is saying, oh, no, stop and just let it go. And then really the detachment itself leads to the surrender. The detachment part requires a little effort, a little will, but the actual letting go part is a surrender. And the difference between detachment and surrender here is very subtle. All these principles operate on a, on a continuum is that in the surrender part, we willingly let it go. And that comes from insight, seeing that this habitual way of behaving is itself the cause of suffering. So we're not letting it go because we've been told to let it go. When we see, oh my gosh, this constant grasping after things is what is causing my suffering. Then you willingly let it go, joyfully let it go. You get a, a, just a little taste of that bliss of self-yielding. So we have to look at surrender in the context of these other principles. Surrender is the last one here. And we spend so much of the path exercising the other principles, detecting uh, these events, these tendencies that we think make up the self, letting them go, and through the course of the path, we gain freedom. You don't have to wait till the end of the path. You gain true freedom from suffering. And to the extent that you gain freedom from suffering, you gain access to joy, to bliss, to calmness, and all that. So there are rewards and fruits that manifest on the path as you go. So a lot of people are very anxious to jump to the end of the path. They hear a teaching like, I surrender yourself. And right away, they want to give up themselves. And they don't realize this, have to go through this process of discovering exactly what all, what this self is made up of. But they also miss, yes, there's discipline in doing this and it's work, but they also miss the excitement and the joy of discovering piece by piece what's going on here. So don't be in such a great rush to get to the end. One example I'm going to give you of something you can practice that takes time to discover and then to detach from and then to actually surrender is the fruit of the action. This comes from the Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the most fundamental principles you'll find it in all mystical traditions in one form or another. The Bhagavad Gita puts it this way. We have the right to act, but not to the fruit. That's that's a, an English translation. The right to act perhaps is not the best word here. It's more like you can't do anything else but act in the world. 
and there are long discussions in the Bhagavad Gita about that because at that time, one of the uh, false ideals of a spiritual path was you were going to get rid of all action. The image of the yogi who's in a samadhi for you know days and days. And the Bhagavad Gita is saying, no, that's, that's, uh, can't be done, first of all, and that's not really what spirituality is all about. <laughs> and the Bhagavad Gita is designed for householders. So the Bhagavad Gita is saying, you don't even have to become an external renunciate and go to live in the caves of the Himalayas. Because the true renunciation is the renouncing of the fruit of your action. So what does this mean? That is, acting in order to get something for yourself. So it goes back to this tendency to grasp for something for the self. Now, if you take this teaching seriously and you apply it to your life and you look at your life, you will see in almost every moment of your life some grasping at the fruit of your action. If you're at work, and the boss tells you to clean the copy machine, there's a little uh, thought in your mind says, well, what, what's in it for me? So you may resist cleaning the copy machine because uh, if you clean the copy machine, this isn't part of your job description. Now, who knows, your boss will have you cleaning out the toilets and everything else. <laughs> So that's, that is grasping, not, that's the opposite of grasping the fruit of the action. That's a version to the fruit of this action, which is just simply the flip side of grasping the fruit of the action. Or you might rush to clean the copy machine because you're going to impress your boss, especially if it's your first day on the job. You're going to get a raise eventually. You're going to get a nicer office or whatever it is. The action is motivated by something's going to happen in the future. That's the point of when you're acting for the fruit. When we do this, our attention is taken off what we're doing, and part of our attention is on what we're going to get out of it. When we live our whole lives this way, of course, part of our attention is always into some imaginary future that never arrives, and we miss what's actually happening. I think it was uh, John Lennon has a wonderful line in one of his songs, is, life is what's happening to you while you're making other plans. And it's very mm -hmm. true. This relates back to the fruit of the action. When we're always acting in order to get something, attention is enslaved, captivated by this. To abandon the fruit of the action is to be there at work, to have your boss say, go clean the copy machine, and it's not that uh, this will disappear. You'll notice the mind saying, Oh, well, what will happen if I clean the copy machine? Is this good for me or bad for me? When you notice that thought arising, you let the thought go right there on the spot. You pay attention. You have a commitment to watch close to your thoughts. You detach from it and you surrender the thought. The thought is going to be connected with some desire, some concern, some anxiety. That arises too. Okay, fine. You're not repressing anything. You do the same thing. Watch that. Let it go. When you've surrendered all that, there you are with your copy machine. And you just clean the copy machine. Just clean the copy machine. I'm trying to take uh, this, this uh, highfalutin principle and make it very concrete. And that's the whole point here. Because people try to practice this. They're waiting for something big to happen. You don't have to wait for anything big to happen. It's much better to practice some little things. The same thing applies at home, taking out the garbage or, you know, whatever it is. Watch your life. You'll see that all through your life, woven through your life, is this 
uh, acting for the fruit of the action. And so you can surrender the fruit. Let it, just let it go. Do what needs to be done. If your boss gives you a raise because you clean the coffee machine, fine. If your boss makes you clean out the toilet, fine. It doesn't make any difference. If you need a raise and your boss doesn't give you a raise and you can't support your family, quit the job and go get a job that you can support your family with. You see, all this happens without any fuss. You don't have to be angry at anybody. It's just whatever is there. It's just responding immediately to what is there. Then you start to experience the bliss of self-yielding. All those thoughts, all those fantasies of what's going to happen in the future, just you let them go. You live now. You might find there are interesting things about cleaning a copying machine. The performance of the little tasks of life, it themselves may contain kernels of little joy that we overlook constantly. Finally, as we progress in the spiritual path, we even have to start giving up the spiritual fruit of our spiritual action. Because everybody who comes to the spiritual path brings with them those same tendencies and that same delusion. Well, now I'm going to do the spiritual path and I'm going to experience bliss and I'm going to have high states of meditation and eventually I'm going to get enlightened. So all your spiritual practice in the beginning, you don't know it, is predicated on getting the fruit of your action. But as you advance, you become more mature, you begin to see, oh, even this is taking away from my spiritual practice. If you're sitting there meditating, waiting to be enlightened, you're not meditating. You're waiting to be enlightened. That's not true meditation. We're going to get a little bit more into this later. This is why Catherine of Siena, a great Christian mystic, she says, to have eternal life, it is essential to love without regard for one's own interests. Fleeing sin for fear of punishment is not enough to give eternal life, nor is it enough to embrace virtue for one's own profit. Now again, she's speaking in Christian terms. She's saying, you know, if, you, if you're avoiding sin because you're afraid you're going to get punished when you go to hell, that's not going to bring you eternal life. And if you're being a good little boy or girl because you want to go to heaven, that's not going to get you into heaven because you're attached to the spiritual fruit of your action in this case. So on the, on the path, we begin to observe that. Notice none of this is about being good or bad. In fact, she's saying transcend being good or bad here. That's what this teaching is about. Drop those ideas. It's about what is real, what is actually going on. What is happening in my mind, my emotions, my feelings? Ramana Maharshi says, to be complete, surrender must be unquestioning. The devotee cannot bargain with the Lord or demand favor, favors at his hands. Such entire surrender comprises all. Again, he's pointing out something very similar that happens on a spiritual path. Oh, if I am virtuous and if I give up all this selfish behavior, uh, what's my reward going to be? That's not true surrender, you see. Well, that's hanging on to something, looking uh, for something for self. So, these teachings are 
stage specific. And I want to mention this here because what we're about to get into sounds like it contradicts everything you hear in the first three quarters of a path. When Theophane says we have to exercise our will, we have to exercise our power and so forth, he's talking about these early stages. But as we become more mature, as we observe more and more, as we see how subtle this grasping and aversion is, then the path starts to sort of turn back on itself. So I want to fast forward here to the most subtle meanings of surrender. And during the course of a spiritual path, it is relatively easy to see or to come to see that you are not a lot of the phenomena inside this imaginary boundary of self that you think you are. It's relatively easy to see that you are not your body. Because if you look very closely, you see your body is really just a bunch of sensations that come and go, and there isn't actually any real body there. You can see you're not your emotions, because your emotions come and go. But the consciousness, the awareness of the emotions is always there. One day you're angry, one day you're sad, one day you're joyful. All these emotions are coming and going, but you're not coming and going with them. The same thing applies to thoughts. You watch your thoughts. You see your, your thoughts are very mechanical. But they chatter away, they chatter away. But the hard thing for most people to see is that we are not the willer of action of our lives. That there is no true self-will. The Bhagavad Gita uh, says, or Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita tells Arjuna, he says, anyone who imagines I act is completely deluded. That's a wonderful teaching. I call that a mirror teaching. People read that, oh, and they skip over it. But if you stop there and you look at yourself, you say, well, do I act? Well, of course I act. But Krishna's saying, that means I'm totally deluded. What does that mean? And then you can look into will. But this idea that we are actors, that we have self-will, is for most people, I think, the linchpin of this swirling delusion of self. So in all traditions, there's this emphasis on giving up self-will. Here's the Hindu Upanishads. The man who surrenders his human will leaves sorrows behind and beholds the glory of the Atman by the grace of the Creator. Atman is the term for the ultimate reality. Here's the Sufi, Aljunia. <coughs> Satisfaction is the relinquishing of free will. Surrender free will. Satisfaction here means total satisfaction. You know, utter, complete contentment, <coughs> the end of the path. And here's <coughs> Catherine of Siena again. It is by that death of self-will that she realizes her union with me, and in no other way could she perfectly accomplish that. Sometimes we think that this whole business of giving up your will is a purely Christian idea. It's not. It's heavy in Christianity. It's also in all other traditions. But then again, this is like saying give up yourself. It's pretty 
huge, pretty amorphous. What is self-will? How do I find it? How do I surrender it? I mean, just sit here and say, okay, I'm just going to give up my self-will. I mean, what does that mean? You can actually try one meditation experiment, which I periodically recommend. I don't know how many people actually do it. And that is to one day when you have, especially if you have a day off, like a, a weekend or something, you get up in the morning and uh, sit down and don't do anything. Just sit down on a couch. Don't sit down in a meditative position. Just sit in a chair. And just don't do anything. See what it means to give up your will. It's very interesting to watch what happens. Because maybe you're sitting there and then you feel this sort of fullness in the bladder. Translates in a desire to pee-pee. <laughs> and then you might say, it's not your saying. You see, you're observing. You might hear your thoughts say, well, I'm not going to move. Oh, but that's self-will, isn't it? Let that go. And you watch, pretty soon your body will get up and go pee-pee. You'll see all this uh, struggle around it. What is will? Am I willing to pee-pee? I'm not willing to pee-pee. It's very interesting to watch all that. Sometimes people have a big breakthrough because you just get sick of it and then you drop it. Oh, I know what detachment and surrender is. You just drop it and go pee-pee. As though... As though <laughs> And then maybe you get thirsty, you know, for something sinful like a soda pop. And the same thing happens. There's a soda pop in the refrigerator, but you're not supposed to do anything. But you're not supposed to not do anything either. Giving up self-will, you see, cuts through that. So it's a very interesting way to bring out all these subtle ways that self-will works by trying just not to do anything. You not do anything. You, the self, not do anything. Doesn't mean the body isn't going to do things. You see what I'm talking about? But let's, uh, let's try to analyze a little bit more here. What are the kinds of subtle things that we will, that we want, that we are striving for on a spiritual path now? We, we uh, long ago abandoned uh, any hope of getting ultimate happiness out of worldly pleasures and so forth. Well, one of the things is we want to know. Well, we go through all this work of the spiritual path, we let go of all these goodies and so forth, but at least in the end we will understand. This is the ego mind, the thinking mind. Finally, I will understand. All my life I've been confused. All my life I've been uncertain. Sometimes I thought this, and then it turned out I had doubts about that, and this and that. So finally, my thinking mind is going to understand. Now, this is a subtle kind of desire. We don't usually think of it as desire. We don't usually think of it as will, and we the will to understand. It's very subtle. Here's what Zen master Suzuki Roshi says. If you want to understand it, you can't understand it. When you give up trying to understand it, true understanding is always there. So, when we talk about surrendering self-will, part of what we're talking about is surrendering understanding. That you'll ever know anything. Here's what Rumi says, 
Where should I seek knowledge? In the abandonment of knowledge. And St. John of the Cross writes, To reach union with the wisdom of God, a person must advance by unknowing rather than by knowing. Surrendering, wanting to know, expectation that that's what enlightenment's going to be. I'm going to know. The subtlest little attachment to this idea that you're going to know anything. Or that you, let's put it this way, that you could know anything with certainty. Then, on a spiritual path, very subtly, we're always making an effort. Even if it's the effort to sit still, if the practice is sit there on the couch, there's effort involved. That effort is being generated by self-will. The will to make some effort. The will to do something, at least. There must be something I can do, is how it translates into everyday terms. There must be something I can do to get rid of suffering. There must be something I can do to get enlightened. There must be something I can do to have union with the wisdom of God. But then, Ramana Maharshi says, Make no effort. Your effort is the bondage. And we're not talking about muscular effort here. We're talking about some sort of mental effort here. Very interesting. To give up mental effort, then physical effort becomes, in a sense, effortless. Here's what Zen Master Huayan Po says. Having many sorts of knowledge cannot compare with giving up seeking for anything which is the best of all things. This looking, this effort, this moving around. Meister Eckhart writes, The more one seeks you, the less one finds you. You should seek him that you find him nowhere. If you do not seek him, then you will find him. And here's the Sufi on Swari of Harat. The one who is dependent on seeking is veiled. Same teaching in all these traditions. So it's giving up wanting to know, it's giving up effort, it's giving up seeking, it's even giving up the attainment of enlightenment itself. The last little bit of attachment of self-seeking. You're sitting there in perfect samadhi, meditation, you've been meditating 20 years in a cave, and any little desires or thoughts that arise dissolve instantly, you have no identification of them, no attachment to them whatsoever. Any sort of physical discomfort arises, any bliss arises, you have no attachment, it's just and you're just sitting there and you're saying, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm going to obtain something here. Even that, you see, is the obstacle. To let that go. To surrender that. 
In effect, we're surrendering attention itself. We're just not even trying to pay attention to any particular thing. Just let that go. Then attention just returns to its source and recognizes its source. Boom. The Tibetans have a lovely way of putting it. It's like a son recognizing his mother. Could be a daughter, father, daughter, mother, doesn't really matter. The idea is there's such familiarity between a parent and a child that when you see your parent, you recognize them. And when the parent sees the child, you recognize each other instantly. So the sun clear light, the clear light of attention, recognizes the mother clear light, the mother clear light of consciousness itself, and recognizes there is no difference. That attention is the consciousness. Boom. So I thought what we do here is I might guide you in a little meditation and we will just uh, skip over 90% of the path <laughs> and we will come to this last stage of the path and I will simply remind you of what to look for, these subtle aspects of self-centered grasping and aversion. Because this is really our big problem. They are normally so buried under grosser forms of grasping and aversion, we don't notice the subtle levels. And so when we start to get rid of the grosser levels, then what happens is, we don't even think to look that they're more subtle levels. Oh, and I got rid of this desire for the hot fudge sundaes and soda pops and, and this and that. Why am I not enlightened? So if you can just de- detect some of these subtle movements in this meditation, it'll be worthwhile. Okay? So, uh, I ring the gong once here to get us going. So let's start just by trying to get our minds settled down a little bit. You might begin by focusing your attention on your breath or some object gently. And as thoughts arise or desires arise or sensations arise, just let them arise, pass away. Don't pay any attention to them. Just keep your attention gently resting on whatever object you've chosen. Come very relaxed.
Now let's begin by surrendering our bodies. That means we're just going to let our bodies be. We're going to recognize that these bodies don't actually belong to us. They arise in consciousness as a vibrating field of sensations. Movements. Sometimes sounds, tastes, smells. But your body's just there. You're not willing your body to be in existence. You can't will your body out of existence at this moment. So let's just surrender our bodies to their own wisdom. Relinquish any attempt to control them, dictate to them, manipulate them. In particular, relinquish all attempts to control the breath. Any subtle attempt to slow the breath down or make it spiritual or do anything like that. Completely let the breath breathe on its own. Now see if you can detect any attachment to the fruit of this action of surrendering the body. Any slight expectation of being more peaceful, calmer, any dissatisfaction with your current state. 
any thoughts about, I wish I could do this better. Any thoughts about, I wish this was over. If you do detect any of these kinds of desires or aversions or expectations, simply surrender them. Just let them go. No need to push them away. Just freeing attention from all that concern. Watch how the mind wants to know what's going on. The mind wants to know where this is leading. What is enlightenment? The thinking mind will never know. The thinking mind will never know. It will be forever ignorant. So just drop all that desire to know. What would it be like to totally surrender to unknowing. To be completely at peace with not knowing.
very gently observe. Is there any effort in the body-mind to let go of knowing? To stop thought or desire or aversion? Is there any effort to become ignorant and willless? Some subtle effort. If and when you detect any subtle efforts of any sort, simply surrender them. Now again, very gently observe the body-mind. And see if you can detect even the subtlest form of seeking. Seeking something that isn't already here. A slight movement of attention away from the present.
a slight seeking for something to happen in the next moment. For something to appear that isn't here. For something to disappear that is here. Very subtle seeking. If you find any such seeking, simply surrender. Finally, surrender all effort to direct or control attention in any way. All effort to keep it still, all effort to keep it focused. Let attention go completely. Let it return to its source.
Would any of you like to share your experience? Did anybody detect any of those subtle movements of effort or will or expectation? You're nodding your head. Do you want to tell me about what you did detect? <laughs> uh, I like having you talking, kind of guiding me along, because uh, it did help me to notice things that I maybe wouldn't have called what you called it. Effort. Mm-hmm. Effort to not have an effort. Mm. And then, at, just before you finished, it just felt like this continuous wave of arising and letting it go and arising and letting it go. I don't know what was arising and letting go, but it just felt like a something that felt like this. And what about when I, I mean, people laugh when I do this, but this is the point. You get into a meditative state where there's this wonderful sense of the flow, unobstructed flow of phenomena and so forth. You know what I mean? Then something like a sharp, loud noise or action (laughs) comes from the outside and it feels like it's interrupting that state and that flow. But that alerts you to a very subtle attachment to a particular state, and we might say a a particular nice rate of flow. So when that noise comes in, people get startled, and there's a break, and there's a sense of discontinuity, and sometimes there's a sense of, oh, you ruined my nice meditation, and whatnot. And if we can see that, then we can start to say, well, wait a minute. Why isn't that part of the flow, too? Why is one particular state better than another state? There's some effort to hold on to that state, some grasping, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, one of the advantages of having uh, a teacher do that, or just having it happen spontaneously, like when you're trying to meditate and there's too much traffic and you think, oh, I can't meditate, it's a nice time to stop and say, well, wait a minute. No, let me meditate with the traffic. Why exclude the traffic? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it it calls our attention just the things we've been talking about. So why do we laugh when when that happens? It's a protection. I'm serious. It's your protection. In that moment, usually, when some sudden, unexpected uh, phenomena distracts our attention from a particular state, there is a moment of pure non-distraction. Pure non-expectation, pure non-knowing. A moment of absolute perfect surrender until the mind then says, what was that? And then we're back into samsara, you see? It's like a moment of no control. Then everything has to readjust and we can get control again. It's okay. Don't make a now big effort not to laugh. No, it's also incongruous. It's incongruous, and and that is disturbing too. It's a break of the continuity of what we know, because our minds are tracking as things come along. Well, I know what this is, I know what that is, I know where that fits into the world, I know. And then suddenly, it's incongruous, it doesn't fit. We expect you to go boing in a beautiful musical way, (laughs) instead you do. (laughs) That's right, there's an expectation. Very good, very good. You see, this is the whole point. 
So we can't surrender our expectations until we can discover them. And if you learn nothing else by this exercise, it's how subtle they are. And that's why to go back to the very first thing, or some of them aren't so subtle, right? <laughs> what Rumi said, in the religion of love, all things are sacrificed. And very often on the spiritual path, people get to a place where they are free of lots of old worldly habits and expectations, and they really discover another inner life that's much more satisfying, much more joyful, much more peaceful, and those things sort of just fall away. They're not interesting anymore. Sitting for three hours in front of the tube watching, I don't know, one of these games, what, Jeopardy is? You know, it, it doesn't get you. It doesn't do it for yeah, you anymore. Right. What? Who wants to be a millionaire? That's Who wants to not see a millionaire? Greed. Greed, yes. <laughs> that's right. But then we tend to get lazy, lazy in the sense that we don't, uh, we don't continue looking deeper and deeper to see the really subtle ones. And so then very often people feel they're treading water for a while. It's a very common thing. But that's the time to get that curiosity aroused again. So what are the really the subtlest little movements of will, of effort, of seeking? Those are the ones that are still veiling that reality. That's still constituting a self. And we might say a very subtle self. Yeah. Um, somehow the letting go of thoughts. Excuse um, me? Letting go of what? The letting go of thoughts is what I associate <clears throat> with what meditation is. So... I experienced great relief at the end when you said, now let go of all effort, because that's the one that, um, that's how I make sense of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and again, I said in the beginning, these teachings are stage specific. One of the problems is, if in the beginning of a meditation practice, or even in a good way to a meditation practice, we take this attitude, well, uh, all my efforts to bondage, I don't have to make any effort, and so forth. And you sit there, these subtle automatic forms of effort, expectation, seeking, uh, desire, are going on, and we just space out. And then you think you're meditating, because this is kind of relaxing and a relief to, you know, especially in our culture where we're driven all day, da-da-da-da-da, just to sit home and veg out is kind of, you know, fun, it's nice. Uh, but because there's no attention in that, there's no awareness, there can be no wisdom, there'll be no insight. So one of the keys along the spiritual path in a meditation practice, and it applies to all other practices as well, is to learn how to adjust and tune that effort so it's just enough to keep you from being distracted at what whatever level of distraction you're dealing with. But not so much that the effort itself then becomes another distraction. This is something everybody has to discover through experimenting in their own experience. So just as a simple, easy example, just you know, meditating on the breath. If you're watching the breath with too much effort, that actually will generate thought and excitement. And you 
you can try, you know, backing off a little bit, backing off more. And then you'll find yourself kind of spacing out. Uh, you need a little bit more effort. Often in a uh, particular session, I think most people find it's better to go in with stronger effort. And then as you're <clears> meditating, <throat> you find, oh, I don't really need so much effort to stay, you know, focused or to stay present. Maybe it's not even a focused meditation. Maybe it's just the choiceless awareness being present. You know what I mean? So it's finding that and then gradually being able to let go of that effort within the context of an undistracted mind. So all those teachings, the high teachings about abandon all effort, don't try to fabricate anything, so they're all predicated on already having an undistracted mind. Because it's only when there's an undistracted mind that you can actually notice the subtleties of a little effort arise and a little seeking arise. Very helpful. Can't tell you how helpful it is to have you describing all those familiar dynamics. Like that's what happens. <laughs> well, yes, that's why um, that's the science part of spiritual path. We can give rather precise names to things going on. When we can give names to things going on, it puts a spotlight on them. And they stand out for us. You know? Eventually, we have to even throw the names away and all that. But in the meantime, they can be very helpful. You know, it's like, this is what um, great poetry is about. A poet expresses what we feel, but we don't quite have the words. And a poet makes it sharp and then evokes the feeling. And we can feel it and experience it, you know, right there, beautifully, in a, in a clear, kind of undistracted way. I have this image going through my mind um, of creative energy. It sort of looks like this. It's moving along, flowing along. And this is poetry and writing and music and dancing and painting and everything. And it, and it comes up to this big sense of me. And then all this distortion happens. I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I don't have time or whatever. And so the creative energy just butts up against that. I know that's total delusion. But what I'm, what I'm feeling is that when surrender comes, then that energy just goes. It, just, it can then be expressed. Yes, and you shouldn't say it's total delusion. I mean, any time well, we're using words, we've got a problem. Yeah. But, but it's, it's not a bad image if it's a nice image. The trouble is when we create images, we like, this is then the, the thinking mind says, oh, now I know. Right, right. So That's we don't delusion. use the image to direct us back to our own experience. And then let the image go. And then try to actually experience that. And where does that obstruction arise? Because it's not just one big solid wall. That's the whole point about the self. The self is always arising as an obstruction in every moment, you know. And some facet of what we call self. They're not the whole big self. So if you take that image and then apply it to a meditation practice or you write poetry and stuff, it can be very helpful as long as you're not attached to the image and, and mm -hmm. fixated on the image and see if you can see where's where's that where i'm writing and the thought says gee how are people going to react to this line maybe i should change it do you know what i mean mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah okay well this is very precise and then you can find exactly how that self arises in that particular instant and it is something very specific it's a thought or it's a fear or it's a you know and in fact, they all go together. And when you can see it, that's when you can, instead of following up with another thought and another self-centered thought and so forth, you can 
let it dissolve. Mm -hmm. And you tell the story about the saxophone player. Oh, you yes. talk about the the guy who one night in the dark you're all sitting there and suddenly he starts playing, and you know it's just this beautiful spontaneous music coming through, and I'm wondering if that's when this energy is coming and that self is down, it's dissolved. That can happen, but it comes back. See. That's well, this is think. this is what he said because it was in the dark and this music was coming through and we were his friends were just blown away. It wasn't in a club or anything, it was just in the living room. And we turned on the light and we're just, you know, flapping and listening. And he had this astonished look on his face. <laughs> and he said, I forgot who was playing. <laughs> Yeah. Which is very telling. <laughs> well, but this is this is the thing. Why we go to hear music to begin with. Why we go to sporting events. Why we go to the theater. Why we go to the movies. To lose ourselves because we know what a relief it is to be out from under that burden. Mm -hmm. But the trouble with that is we usually have no mindfulness in the activity. So we don't see exactly how that delusion arises. So when the circumstances change, well, the old tendencies come right back because we haven't had any insight. We haven't been able to actually see, oh, this is how it's happening. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if that's... Uh, <laughs> if there are no more questions, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're still welcome to stay and have some tea and check out our library if you haven't been here before. Until we see you again, peace to you all.